eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to the NASCAR on NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, here with NASCAR on NBC analyst Steve Letarte. We're talking on the Monday after Richmond Raceway. And Steve, if you didn't think that Kevin Harvick was a legitimate playoff contender, you certainly do by now. After 65 races without a win, he has now won two consecutive races. Starting to wonder if he's ever going to lose again in the Cup Series at this point. So... Let's start there. Like, I know that you've talked about Harvick before as a former crew chief, that he's one of those guys like Kyle Busch, whom you've said, I think, that you'd love to crew chief a guy like this because he's so mentally tough. He's so focused. Only one thing matters to guys like Harvick and Kyle Busch, and that's winning. And I presume that's why he's still so competitive at age 46. Yeah, I mean, so I was, I'm still shocked at their win at Michigan. Um, you know, it took a lot of things to happen in a small period of time to give them the track position, but then. You know, that's only half the story. The other half is they closed the deal when it was in front of them and closed the deal in an impressive manner. Not as shocked about Richmond. You know, if you go back to the spring, he pushed Denny Hamlin every corner of the entire last run that Denny had on tires. He was a car length behind him from start to finish of that pit strategy call and that run to the finish. So I don't think we're shocked. The Fords have been good anywhere. You use the brakes, good anywhere. It's not a momentum track. Richmond is definitely considered that. And the Fords across the board were good. Uh, Blaney was decent, Logano good at times. All the SHR cars were good. The 14 with another head-scratching fire in the rocker box that kind of eliminated them. Uh, but the 10, uh, you know, a different race with a bunch more yellows. Maybe the 10 had a chance to get there because he drove green flag from 30th to, like, inside the top 10. Um, so, yeah, not shocked at his speed at Richmond, but, you know, he's going to be dangerous. You know, what this format has allowed is a 46-year-old driver with children. Um, it's a long year from February to November, and I think if if they're sitting in race cars that can win, they know it, and you get a superstar's attention like Kevin Harvick's. When you're sitting in cars that can't win, he still brings his full effort, right. but I think he's learned to race with his son and enjoy his family and, and be there when it matters and show up every Sunday and give your best effort, but let those guys continue to work on the car, be a part of the process, and be ready that when the car is winning capable, like he had in Michigan, he shut the door on it quickly. And made it happen. Um, and now we've seen two weeks in a row. So this is, uh, like you said, he, he really has recovered. He got some playoff points. He's going to be um, at least a contender. I don't have him going much further than maybe the eighth hmm. round of eight. Um, but it wouldn't shock me if he did. You know, if I had to handicap it, I'd say round of eight because I, I think they have that pace. I just, the last two weeks have been more important for Kevin Harvick than they have for a lot of guys that are already in the playoffs. So when it's a, really important to everyone, 
we'll see what it looks like then. And he did say that he feels as if this has been building since Nashville. Like yeah. that was where he first, you know, almost two months ago is when he first felt as if its team was hitting its stride. But for us on the outside, for those who aren't involved in the daily meetings at Stuart Haas Racing, we don't see the reports from the engineers about like how the speed is picking up. It's caught us a little bit off guard, but they've gotten better, but maybe they're not world leaders yet. So, so Richmond did not catch me off guard at all. Uh, Michigan completely did. Yeah, I just I just didn't see, you know. But here's the thing, Michigan completely did, but he still won with about the sixth best car. Like I don't think we were wrong in our handicapping of their speed. At lap 156, he was running sixth. In the next three laps, one Trackhouse car and one Joe Gibbs Racing car wrecks. The other Trackhouse car gets caught a lap down. The other Joe Gibbs Racing car has a penalty on pit road. Yeah, all he has left to beat is Bubba Wallace. Um, which was a you know a very tough car to beat, and that's my point is he had some good luck, but good luck's only half of it. He still had uh, that competitive desire, that talent behind the wheel, and a fast enough race car to win. Now Richmond, that was more um, Kevin Harvick, Rodney Childers. Now I will say, if the eleven could just somehow get tires on without a penalty, yeah, I still think Kevin Harvick runs second again. Yeah, and we're gonna get to that. This is definitely the next thing I want to touch somehow. on. But before somehow, before. <laughs> Well, we could be talking about a two-race winning streak for Denny Hamlin. I want to talk to you about that next. But first, just to put a period on Harvick, and you mentioned Childers. Harvick, as we sit here at this NASCAR America set right here, was a guest with us last week on NASCAR America Motormouths. Great interview, I thought, especially because of his rapport with you. He really liked kind of reminiscing about how much NASCAR has changed over the last two decades. But yet he still, again, is successful in his mid-40s. And again, I think it's, you know, you talked about he's got two kids now, but he seems as focused as ever. And I'm sure that in some ways he's a hard guy to crew chief for because he's very demanding, but in some ways he's probably easy because there's no BS, right? <laughs> like it's just yeah. like, all I got to worry about is just making the car fast. But, but Jeff Burton and I talked about this before his win at Michigan weeks ago. We talked about this. Something is different hmm. because in years past, and you have to go way back because he has won for so long with Rodney. If you go back to his RCR days, when things were not where they needed to be, he was very vocal, almost whiny, almost rude, almost intolerable. He was very critical of his team, his crew chiefs, Richard Childress Racing, the engines, whatever it was, whatever was in his crosshairs, he hit with a ton of bricks. So either A, he's aged and changed, which I'm not sure is the case because he seems like the same Kevin Harvick. Or B, he doesn't think he has to be like that in the public. So something at SHR, because remember, he's really never had a down spell at SHR. This right. is his first. And in 65 weeks, a couple times at the pit stops, never at the team, never at the organization, never at Zipadelli, or never that I can recall. So – Something, whether it's a relationship with Tony, whether it's without a doubt being the A driver in the organization, whether it's the way it's – I don't know what it is. I really don't. But something has made it where he didn't have to air his grievances publicly. Being a dad? Do you think you know, I think so. But I don't – I think it's a little bit Kevin. Like 80, 20, 70, 30. Maybe 30% is Kevin being a dad and learning and, and maturing and all that. But I, I think the other part's the other side. I think it's the group around him he doesn't think he has to do it. Because I believe, even as a dad, if he thought he couldn't get Rodney Childers to do it or Zippy to do it or Ford to do it, he would have no problem. And here's why. 
because if you flip to the safety of the vehicle, he's the same Kevin Harvick we heard 10 years ago. Right, so his delivery hasn't changed. You see my yeah. point? Like he's not gun shy about speaking out about the need to make sure the car is safe. And that was the same Kevin Harvick that used to talk about his race team. So that's why I don't think he has changed. He still has the tool to calculated conversation with the media to move the needle where he wants to move it. And that's how we did it at RCR and all of those things. I just feel that this is a major tip of the hat to an organization. That SHR, Ford, Rodney Childers, Greg Zipidelli, and all the other decision makers over there, he has so much confidence in, he doesn't have to air it publicly. Now, listen, I'm fine if he shuts the door, slams his foot down, and say, guys, what is the problem? Like, that's great. That's what he should be doing. Yeah. But I just think that there's something to be said for that. Like, yeah. it's really, really, really hard <laughs> to keep a guy with that much fire comfortable and confident enough that you are working and doing it for 65 races. No, not 10, 65. So I don't know. I don't know how that got here, but it's, man, it's impressive. And you, it, listen, that conversation I have with Kevin, Kevin and I, have we have a, a ton of respect for one another. His talent behind the wheel is amazing at 46 years old. His drive, his desire, he is. He's on that short list of drivers that I would love to have had a chance to Kuchi for because they're just so good and they're the way they go about their business. And it was a, the easiest 20 minutes I think we've ever had discussing, and he was just happy. You know, Happy Harvick's his nickname. I'm going to tell you, when he's Happy Harvick, look out. <laughs> happy literally and figuratively. Uh, and much like that 20-minute interview, I, I encourage everybody to check that out, by the way, on the Motorsports and NBC YouTube channel. You can see Kevin Harvick on NASCAR American Motor Miles last week talking to Steve and Marty Snyder and myself. He was just like that after the Richmond victory, obviously in a good place, in a good mood. And as you said, not calling out his pit crew, a driver who certainly could have done that, Steve, was Denny Hamlin. As you mentioned, the second straight week that a pit stop really cost the 11 team a win. At Michigan, it was a penalty. This time, it was the team dropped the jack too early, essentially cost him three seconds on that final stop at Richmond, and that cost him a chance of winning. It comes back to finish fourth. Hamlin kept a brave face about it afterward. He said, We were a top three car all day, and obviously our, we should have won uh, had it not been for that last pit stop. Are you going to ask for changes to the pit crew, or do you have no, confidence in No, just gotta, they just got to clean it up. They just got to get reps. and um, You know, the good news is we didn't leave a tire loose there. Um, you know, Darrell dropped the jack, and we didn't have the tire off yet, so it's good news we didn't go anywhere. And you know, I saw the, the hiccup happening, but um, it's just big time auto racing. You know, I, I wish I wish the, the bad pit stops would be early in the race instead of on the last stop every week. But you know, it is what it is, and we'll we'll just uh, we'll suck it up and go on to the next one. I did everything I could to to drive as hard as I can and really optimize my lap time, and I knew that we were on the right strategy. I knew the lap times I was running late in runs was fast enough to win. And when we came down that pit stop, I nailed the entry pit road. I thought it rolled really well. And we got the right sides done quick, and then the left sides we had that, you know, mistake. So it's just, uh, there's, uh, it takes all of in knowing that you didn't, I didn't play a factor really in our finishing position. Um, we got good enough guys, the, the five picker guys that we got on our team are uh, great athletes and you know, they they nailed it nine out of ten times today. Just uh, the one had had one hiccup. I'm going to ask you, Steve. I mean, what does Joe Gibbs Racing need to do here to improve execution? Because Denny Hamlin is saying, "Look, I, I'm happy with these five guys. These are still the same five guys I would pick if I had to go to the championship race tomorrow." But it does seem as if this is a recurring problem for Gibbs, and we know they're assembling pit crews for six cars. Does this equation change if only four of those cars make the playoffs, as is the case right now? 
are a lot of layers to this onion. Let's start with the final question. The answer is absolutely. Bubba Wallace has a new contract. He should feel really good about his tenure at 23-11. Martin Trix Jr. is returning. I bring those two names up because those are the two names currently on the outside of the playoffs looking in. So if we started tomorrow, those are the two drivers that I'd be calling up and saying, hey, man, just so you know, for the next 10 weeks, your pit crews will be five and six. We would take our group that we currently have across six cars, and we would put together whatever we feel gives us the best four playoff contending cars. And I'm sorry, but you knew back in February the goal was to make the playoffs. You fell short of that goal. We're not unhappy. We're not displeased. But don't call us out for making changes on pit road because we're going to do it for whatever needs to be done. And I think that's okay. And it, people can say it's unfair, but don't confuse fair and equal. Like, it's big boy sports. One organization controls those six pit crews. And mind you, one of them's a 2311 car. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it, I'm, I would be taking from Truex to the 45 if that's how the playoff unfolds. And it's unfortunate. And Truex will be frustrated, as he should be. But, I, you know, I think he understands it. He's been the other way. Now, the long story, and it involves Martin Truex Jr., he is two or three pit stops away from being a three- or four-time champ. Last year, Kyle Larson, with a very good car and a very talented driver, won a championship by a victorious final pit stop. And I think that was a moment in time that Joe Gibbs Racing switched gears. I think they went from blocking and tackling and having solid pit stops to ears pinned back going as fast as you possibly could go every single pit stop because that's what cost them a championship. So, fast forward. It used to be Hendrick made a lot of mistakes but had fast pit stops. Now it's kind of moved to Gibbs, and I think it's because they are, when I watch their pit stops, they are pure timing. That 11 pit stop, the jack man, jacks the left side, hangs the left rear tire, takes his left hand and drops the jack. And that isn't a mistake. He has coached that to have the fastest pit stop, we don't have time to make sure it's okay up there. They have a head start. They start in front of the car. The guy in the back has to run around the back of the car. They, in theory, should be done. The pit stop has gone from a big out-route football play that takes two and a half seconds to develop, where the quarterback gets to go to receiver one, receiver two, receiver three, and then a check down. That was the pit stop with five lug nuts. Now it is a five-yard slant. It's a snap and a throw before the guy's even there. And if the guy's not there or the ball gets tipped or the timing's wrong, it's an interception, and that's just how it is. That's what every pit stop is. It is a pure sprint timing play. And so I think that that is why you're seeing the inconsistencies and the mistakes. Now, listen, a week ago in Michigan, a guy literally just stepped like, I'm like, what are you doing? Just know the rules. Don't step in pit lane. But the issue this week was just – and I don't know why Denny's response was what it was. I don't know what's happened in the background. Maybe he has the five that he's asked for. So be careful what you ask for. If you get the five you asked for, <laughs> you're going to have to defend him. And maybe yeah. that's Denny. Maybe Denny knows it's only two weeks to the playoffs. So my, my best chance is to just believe in these five and let's try to build a little confidence. Like, I'm sure he has a reason for his answers. But to go back to your point, if I had six pit crews and four were in the play, listen, we had a car that fell out of the race that we swapped pit crews on. So Chad and I swapped at Texas in like that's right. 2000 something or other. 2010. The, and the every year Jimmy won his fifth championship. They won the championship with your pit crew. The next two races. And and that was I just climbed on the box and said, Hey Chad, what's going on? Man, pit stops are awful. Well take my guys. <laughs> He's like, You think? I said, Man, they're pretty good. I said, you know, I don't know if they're as fast as your guys, fastest the fastest, but they block and tackle great, man. They'll take You don't care? Nope. Okay, do it. The long theory, that's literally what it took. It was about a thirty second conversation and a half, and that was the relationship Chad and I had. So 
listen, I've done it. It's I, I'm sorry. I, it's yeah. I, you. You know my favorite quote. This is intramural football. I don't yeah. care, man. Don't bring your feelings. My dad taught me a long time ago. If you're gonna go race, leave your feelings at the gate. So check your feelings at the gate. I've heard Dale Jr. say that as well. So if Gibbs comes to Denny Hamlin, then on um, I guess what the Monday after Daytona and says, "Look, we know you love your five guys, but we've decided." These five guys are the best chance. I, I feel there's a department. I think there's a department there, and if it was me, the drivers and the crew chiefs would sit down with the pit crew department, and I would present my case for what I think is the best going in. In the end, I believe the crew chief and the driver have the ability, or at least I don't know how Gibbs runs, but I would think they have the ability to say, no, I'm going to stick with my five. You know, this is the reason. But if I'm the pit coach over there, I'm presenting that. I'm sitting down and showing how I believe the best four teams can enter the playoffs. And maybe they've already done it with Denny. I mean, I, I just don't know. We don't know. This is an interesting conversation because now I'm remembering, like, we had Adam Stevens on after Christopher Bell's win at New Hampshire. And Stevens did tell us that the crew chiefs don't really have autonomy at Gibbs over the pickers. Like you said, that's a separate department in Gibbs, and, the, and that department assigns the teams their pickers. So the drivers and crew chiefs have sway, have some influence. But it's not like yeah. when you were a crew chief, probably Hendrick, and you were kind of king of the mountain said, if I want these five guys, I'm getting them. It's a little bit different. And that's kind of, I don't know if that's just a Gibbs thing anymore. I think, you know, as technology increases and the crew chiefs go from a tire report to a tire and arrow report to a tire and arrow and a strategy and a this and a that and a that, like something has to come off their plate. I mean, the guys are going to burn themselves out if not. So pit crews is an entire department you could kind of remove because in theory, you would think a group that focused that and solely on that would do a better job of managing talent. Now, we could ask if that's the right strategy or not, but. You know, it's, it's hard because, like you said, Denny Hamlin could easily be sitting here with two, two wins the last two weeks. I think at Michigan, I'm willing to say slam dunk. No one beats Denny Hamlin on that final restart with the car he had, even Kevin Harvick. I bet Kevin Harvick would tell us that if he was sitting here because that puts Kevin Harvick at least third in the choose behind Bubba Wallace and Denny Hamlin. Now, Richmond, I'm not going to pretend that he was in front of Bell and he could have run Harvick down. Harvick's pretty good. Maybe he was racing out of his mirror. Maybe he was only going as hard as he needed to go. You know, we don't know how that would have went, but I've heard Denny's quote saying he felt like he really had a chance to win that race. The math says he had a really good chance to win that race. The fans got robbed of what I think would have been a great duel, whether it was with 20 to go or 10 to go. At some point, Harvick was going to have to get passed by Hamlin under Green. That's the pass we were all waiting to see, and it never came. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of all got robbed because of that, that bad pit stop. Yeah, and Adam Stevens also made a really good call to get Christopher Bell back in oh. contention. This was a strategy race, and I want to talk to you about that a little bit. But one thing that I talk to you about all the time is crew chief moves. And this is, I think, a great example of how to explain the risk versus reward decisions that crew chiefs make. So the end of stage two, Christopher Bell is a lap down. And he's got 50-plus laps on his tire since the last stop. He fell a lap down because he had a penalty in the pits. And stage two ends, and Adam Stevens says, I'm going to take a gamble and take the wave around, get back on the lead lap to start the final stage with tires that have more than 50 laps on them, which means at Richmond, probably 10, 15 laps of green before he's probably going to go a lap down yep. with, with that much wear. Yep. He chances it. They get a caution pretty much on the restart when Ross Chastain hits Kyle Busch and, and Truex, and Christopher Bell waves back around on the lead lap and is in contention the rest of the way, finishes second, almost beats Harvick, wins the race. So the 20 took the wave around, but these cars also were a lap down, and also, like the 20, had a win. The 24 of William Byron, the 48 of Alex Bowman, 99 of Daniel Suarez, the 2 of Austin Sindrick, the 8 of Tyler Reddick, what do you make of that as a former crew chief that Adam Stevens was the only guy who took the risk and said, you know what? I've got to win. I'm in the playoffs. Let's gamble and see if I can get my guy back on the lead lap and back in contention here. 
So why did Adam Stevens make that decision? In the spring race, there was two organic yellows. They both came after the green flag of stage three. If you go by the last year, I'm like, I could bore you with the stats. You know, that's just what I do. I study the races previous. So it didn't shock me he made that decision, and the numbers would say. You mentioned the risk. The risk is clear. I mean, he's going to lose a couple laps if it goes bad. I was shocked more didn't try that. I was shocked more guys didn't try to only stop once in either stage. I was shocked that there was no, quote, alternate strategy. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, if everybody follows everybody, you're going to run where you're running or worse. If you're a 15th place car and the first 14 cars pit under green, you're either telling me that you don't think you should run better, so you're going to pit under green and just run 15th, which is okay for some. I say that because some guys say they're not good at Richmond, say they're having a bad day. They're like, man, if we could just run 15th, we're going to get out of here. That's okay. Like, that's really okay because you can't uh, – you know, football's offense can't be four quarters of Hail Marys. Like, you can't. That's not how it is. But the cars you listed, I am shocked that no more of them gave that a run, gave that a chance. I was shocked the 47 was the only one that tried to do the second stage on one stop. I'm very disappointed with the lack of creativity on pit road. Just I am. It's like there was a group. You want to talk about frustration? You think this is a bad call. There's a group of guys who were running in the last five positions on the lead lap. And when the leaders came in the middle of stage two for the first time, they followed them in to get lapped. (laughs) What in the heck are you doing? And there's a gap at the math. The math. You are gone. You're a lap down. Just stay out and run 20 more laps. God forbid you get lucky and get a yellow <laughs> and end up on the lead. Like, like I just think I, it just amazes me the lack of creativity from some of these teams. I don't think it is ignorance. I don't think it is lack of preparation. I believe it's distraction. I believe the role and the strategy have surpassed what a crew chief can do while worrying about fuel mileage and tire pressure and adjustments and communication and running a pit crew and, 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 and. Like, there's too many ands. It's time to take something off his plate or give the responsibility to somebody else. But I believe they are too distracted and too in the forest to see the trees. They just can't. They have too much going on. I say this because I go back and look at all the bad decisions I made, and there's a million of them. And now that I sit up above the fray with no stress about the speed of a race car, I'm like, it's so clear. It's just so clear up here. And, and that's why I, I don't think I'm smarter than these guys. I think these are the best crew chiefs in the world. I just think I have been fortunate enough to see it from a different perspective. And I think that some of these crew chiefs should discuss. Remember, we have less people to track than ever, which means there's more people at home. So those people at home are communicating with the people. That's just more distraction from the crew chief. Now, right. when he's sitting there, we're seeing he's got stuff on his, on his computer. He's got, like, I would love to know, because, listen, I wasn't around for war rooms. I, this is all new to me. I would love to know. I would love to take a crew chief and say, hey, man, what do you do during the race? Like, re- like really, like, I'm going to get a pen and paper out. Like, okay. Do you do tire pressure? Yeah, okay. Do you talk to the shop? Yeah, I'd love to, like, because I bet the influx of communication is probably mind-blowing. Too much multitasking. In other words. Well, and so, yeah, so they might have the right air pressure and they might have the right fuel mileage and they might put the right cross weight in and they made the absolute wrong decision to come to pit road. I'm like, did all the other three things matter? Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the math as well. And I did have a chance to ask Rodney Childers about this because I was curious. Obviously, in April, there was the strategy that Harvick and Denny Hamlin employed. They finished one, two, and they split the final stage into thirds, made two stops. This time, 
everybody was on the same strategy there. And like you said, everybody was sort of monkey see, monkey do. Everybody was pitting within a lap of each other. And I asked Rodney Childers about that after the race. And Rodney said, you know, and all these teams are, are good at that stuff, right? So we look at the practice fall off and man, we weren't 20 laps into practice. And my engineer back at the shop is telling me on the intercom, yep, it's going to be that, you know, you're going to have to pit twice. You're going to have to do those kinds of things. And it's about five or six seconds faster doing it that way, but it ends up being more than that. Like, you know, from a mass standpoint, it shows five or six seconds, but he'll tell you on the racetrack, when you have those old tires, you just end up handicapped. You can't do anything. You can't get out of the way. You can't do this. You can't do that. And the five seconds turns into 15 seconds. So, um, you know, it all comes down to that math and practice and looking at the fall off. And um, it was pretty easy to see. All that math and science, I guess, like, is it not only multitasking, but are there almost too many people involved in making these decisions? It sounds like what you're saying is maybe there just needs to be one or two people. Like, you're the strategy people. You tell me what to do. You worry about setting up the car, crew chief. You, you handle, like, that kind of stuff. But one guy is just going to tell you when to pit. Well, so there's predictive software. There's engineers working on it. But, but I have a disagreement on what makes good, a good strategist. I think it's 30% preparation, 30% math and science, and 30% artistic ability. And I think most of Pit Road doesn't agree with my last 30%. I think my last 30% is they just don't believe it. They just don't believe it's, there's any sort of artistic ability. And I refuse to believe that. Um, drivers aren't robots. Crew chiefs aren't robots. Stats will tell you one out of three pigs will build a house out of brick. Like, I can <laughs> tell you, you can look at all, like, like, you know, I just believe that, that there is an artistic sense in the race. Yeah. You've been to a lot of races. For a guy like you, I think it's clearest at the speedways. You ever stand there at Talladega where, you know, the, they get lined up single file around the top with like 11 to go and the fans all sit down because they think it's boring and me and you sit up because we're like, oh, here it comes. And we know we are running towards an absolute chaotic finish. The scrambles about the beginning. Right. Yeah. Versus if it's three wide all the time, why that looks cool on TV, there's no energy. It's just going to round like a block of cars until it's over or somebody hits somebody. Like, it's a very different feel. That's artistic. That's like, hey, I see this coming. You know, Indy 500 qualifying this year, it took, you know, someone with some artistic ability to be like, we're not running. It's 30-mile-an-hour wins. We're just going to believe in our science. Like, you got to know where the two go. So, yes, Rodney's right. The math says pit twice. What no one talks about is if you pit twice and you're around the fifth-place car, you're going to be a lap down 20 laps of 140. If someone stays out and does it once. If the whole field pits, there's no negative. So my frustration is if you are an average car, why don't you make it harder for the guys in front of you to make that call? Following the leader makes it an absolute no-brainer. You know, if you're the 10th-place car or the 7th-place car, I just stay out. And that's what the 47 tried to do in that first stage, or second stage, the first long one. You know, you're only a lap down if someone stays on the racetrack. But it was, I'm telling you, my brain exploded. It was crazy. The whole field pitted under green in two laps. It was quite shocking. Now, in the final stage, it was a little bit staggered because we had some yellows, just like we did in the spring. Uh, the Gibbs cars, basically the 20 and the 11, pitted on the yellow, so they had a little bit fresher tires. So they just ran to their numbers of division. We kind of figured that out after they pitted the first time. I thought because of tire count, the 11 might not have pitted that last time. And just ran it out because thinking he would get a yellow. He decided to pit. That's a coin flip, to be quite honest. I think he could have won with a good pit stop. The negative is if a caution comes out, I don't think he has new tires to put on. So there's a lot of layers to this strategy that we don't talk about on TV because 
you know, because strategy is great and it's part of the race, but there's human beings we should talk about, their teams, or performances. There's a lot of storylines that need to be covered. This is such a tough race to stay on top of, and it was interesting to me that we saw such huge fades by, I mean, Chastain leads every lap in stage one, finishes a lap down. Logano leads over 200 laps, looks like he has the best car, finishes sixth. Larson was a factor all the way in the final stage, and he finishes a lap down. Why is it so hard for crew chiefs? do you think, to stay on top of Richmond? Was it something about the temperature this time? It cooled down throughout the course of the race? I think it cooled or? down a little bit. I think later into the year, it's obvious to me that the crew chiefs are better. To, they know what knobs to turn. Kevin Harvick even kind of said it. Even Chris Buescher said it. He's like, man, I wouldn't have thought that's after practice. So in the past, you built a car to go to the racetrack, and most of the time you couldn't change it. And it, I think it's because you built it a certain way. Well, now all these cars are kind of generic, and, and while they are assembled differently – I think they all know what the hot buttons are. Raise the front, drop the front, change this loading, whatever it may be. They can make good cars bad and bad cars good pretty quickly. Some of these crew chiefs can't, which is spectacular for the race fan. Um, You know, I don't know. You know, I have a lot of answers about strategy and stuff. I I don't know why the track went through this big shift. Um, I don't know if it was tire sets. I don't know if it was – okay, so most of the time, if you don't have a lot of tire fall off, you're either loose or tight, and that's what you adjust. But in a place like Richmond, are you trying to get better on the new tires, the old tires? Looser, tight, middle versus X. You know, it was definitely – I hadn't seen that many – that much variety in performance. Really, I think Chris Pusher perhaps was the best from start to finish. He just was kind of second or third best from start to finish depending on who cycled to the front. So I, so I don't know why there was such a big variety. But I would add that everybody that wants more practice should watch that race again. Because if you get all those guys an hour, the guy that leads the first stage might lead 400 laps. So we don't want that. Last thought about Richmond. Obviously, two similar races this year, Stevie, uh, both the April race and this August race played out almost identical. Just the strategies were a little bit different, but the way the tires wore and the way the cautions fell. A lot of discussion about if that's the kind of brand of racing people want to see at Richmond. Denny Hamlin addressed this afterward. It really didn't matter whether you had this at night or day. Honestly, it doesn't really change the racing here. Um, these cars are just, you know, so aero-sensitive on the short tracks, uh, and we're shifting that it just makes it really, really difficult to uh, uh, to pass. It doesn't matter whether it's day or night. Night would be worse today. It's not a racetrack problem. It's it's just a aerodynamic problem. Uh, the, these things just don't turn behind other cars. They're they're certainly more aero-sensitive than than the previous car we had on the short tracks. And you add in shifting. Um, you know, but we've had races like this for a long time, long green flag runs. This is this is just Richmond, and it's just a different type of racetrack. When you go to, um, you know, Bristol, it's a different type of racing. When you go to Daytona, it's a different type of racing. Here, it's the, the battles are within. You saw someone close to within four car lengths of the leader from God knows how many seconds back. So it's a it's a purest type of racetrack if you want side by side beating and banging this is not your racetrack you know we were talking about this before your feelings on this and short track racing where richmond sort of fits in with you know bristol martinsville short track racing in general well i think that too many people think they're smart enough to change the ingredients of the soup and know it's going to taste exactly like they want and and i say that because do you want short track racing yes okay richmond's a short track it's three quarters of a mile that's what you asked for. What, what do you want? You don't like how they run it? You don't like the strategy? You don't like that analytics have told drivers not to wreck? I mean, which part of it don't you like? I watch a lot of short track racing all across the country. That's what it looks like. Watch Slinger. See how many yellows there were. Watch the Oxford 250. 
Go down to the Panhandle of Florida in the springtime and watch what that looks like. Go down to New Smyrna. There was like five or six yellows for the entire speed weeks. Like, what do you want? Do you want beating and banging or do you want short track racing? Because you asked for short track racing. That is Richmond. That is short track racing. That is what you're going to get. I, you know, I, what could you do? I wouldn't have the stages the same in the two races. The next time I went there, the first stage would be 150. The last stage would be 70. I'd be like, oh, let's see how smart you are now. <laughs> like, like, those are small changes I would make. Yeah. I think this. A lot of people in the stands felt pretty good in the park a lot. A lot of excitement. Saw some pretty passionate fans. Saw some campers outside. It's okay that you hate that race. Like, it's okay. It's okay to be like, I'm not going to Richmond. That's awful. That ain't, my cup, that ain't my cup of tea. I'm going to the dirt race. Good. Great. That's not my – man, I like road course racing. Then go to Watkins Glen. Like, I know this is hard to believe, but it's easy to pick on the negatives of 36 weeks. It's a long season. There's a long grind. It's a lot on the fans. It's a lot on the drivers. It's a lot on the things. Let's talk about the positives for once. We can deliver you a wide variety of racing in both areas of the country and styles in which you see. I think that we've come to this number of five or six road courses, probably enough. With Atlanta, we have about six speedways, probably enough. If we want more short track racing, I'm not against it. I think add a couple more, but don't ask for them. Have them look like Richmond and then get mad. I mean, so far this year, we've had three short track races by definition. Now, me and Dale Jr. disagree because Phoenix and New Hampshire <laughs> are short tracks for me because you run brake ducks. So I'll, I digress. But the spring Martinsville and the first Richmond and the second Richmond had a lot of similarities. So do I think that they could be improved upon? I do. Do I think we should work on the car? Perhaps. Yeah, maybe. Tires, gearing, track treatment. I'm not opposed to improving. But, you know, you can't force the drivers to do what you think is the most entertaining thing. You just tell them how many laps to run and what track to run it on, and here's the tires. And I think we as media have the obligation to not introduce every flame of change. Like, sometimes races are just that way. People are going to hate me, but I was fascinated by both of them. I thought the spring race was a top five race of the year for me because it was execution and talent at its finest. I don't love four wide beating and banging and some guy just gets lucky to spit out the other side. I, you know, I don't see a whole – I see a lot of daring there, but I'm not sure I see as much talent as what I saw with Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick chasing William Byron down in traffic in the spring or the talent – of Kevin Harvick not slipping a rear tire while trying to run Joey Logano down and then running just hard enough to beat a coming Christopher Bell to the lo- – like, there's, a, there's some, some beauty to that. Now, listen, I also don't want 36 weeks of that. <laughs> I like the variety. Sure. So, um, but look, it's okay if someone says they don't like it. It's okay that they want to be vocal about it. But that doesn't mean we all have to react and do something different. You certainly deserve a lot of credit because you've gotten a lot of plaudits on social media for the way you've explained these strategies in races like this. So. Hey, listen, I need some strategy races. If they're all just uh, <laughs> junkyard, if they're all just, you know, uh, demolition derbies and junkyard fights, I don't think I'm going to have a job, right? Because, <laughs> but on a serious note, it, it's, I think the beauty of NASCAR is we don't want 36 of anything. Right. We really don't. I don't even care if it's the best race in the world. You even don't want 36 of the Like, you really have to have variety. I mean, you, everyone has a favorite meal, but that doesn't mean you eat it seven days a week. What makes it your favorite is because you have it on special occasions or you only have it every once in a while, so you look forward to it and you yearn for it. And, you look, and, and like that, we need a little of that in NASCAR. It's okay. It's totally fine. 
It is time for the Motor Mouths of the Race presented by eBay Motors. This is a new feature in which we talked about a notable quote from the race that just happened. Going back to Kevin Harvick, Stevie, I asked him afterward about the fact that since he has turned 40, he has 29 Cup Series victories, which ranks third all time among Cup Series drivers, by the way. He's just behind Lee Petty and Bobby Allison, third among Cup Series drivers with victories after he turned 40. And also means he's got 60 career victories, so almost half of his career Cup wins have come since he turned 40. So Nate Ryan, NBC Sports, I have another old guy question, but let's call it a perspective question. How about that? Since you talked about perspective in your opening answer. So since you've turned 40, this is your 29th Cup Series victory, which ranks third all time and also means almost half of your career Cup wins have come since turning 40. So... As someone who tweeted "old guys rule," do you take some pride in that? I do take pride in that. I love it. You know, I think I think um, you know, and and for for me, you know, a lot of the guys that I grew up racing with are, you know, Dale's up in the booth, and Kyle and and Dale Jarrett are you know down here, and you know, you've got Boyer in the booth, and you know, Jeff's on pit road. You know, after the race, I I saw Jeff and and driving to to Victory Lane. So you know, a lot of the guys that that I grew up racing with. You know they're all retired and and doing other things, but I get to still see them, and it's, you know, it's those quiet high fives that that are, are a lot of fun and and kind of keep it in perspective for me because of the fact that, you know, you're you're older and supposed to be done and and kind of headed down headed down a path that is that is, um, you know, toward the end. But you know, I think I've always prided myself in trying to trying to be com- competitive and do what it takes to be competitive and make the sacrifices that it that it takes to be competitive and but I do enjoy it. There's nothing better than winning. I don't know how to really put it all into perspective because it's just not something that I just stop and really ever look at. I never really stop and say, you know, where are all those 60 wins? You know, it's, you know, I, I, the first one's easy that today's easy to remember last week's easy to remember. But, you know, if you guys wouldn't have told me that we, that the last race that we won was at Bristol, I would have argued with you. I would have told you it was Darlington. So I don't, I don't really look at the numbers. It's always about, and maybe this is a fault of mine, but you know, I think it's also, you know, one of the reasons that we progress forward, but it's never about what you have done, what the numbers look like. It's, what do we got to do next week? What we what could we have done better last week? How do we keep this all in perspective? And and so, you know, it's and maybe it's maybe sometimes I need to just stop and and kind of take it all in. But I don't know. It's it's that it's that um, I always feel like it's bragging. You know, when you, when you stop and talk about yourself and and you know, I think for for me, just I just want to be like I, I've I, I like most of the kids in the garage i like you know being around the competitors i've got a much better relationship with most everybody in the field the crew chiefs the owners so i like that part and you want them to respect you when when you're done so you know it's it's hard to i don't know the perspective of of what has happened is is really not something that i stop and say you know that was that was pretty cool i thought it was cool that i could put my little girl in the car last week and and we could you know, do stuff like that. And, and so those are the things that I think are neat right now. I guess I'm kind of curious, like your reaction to that, like how Kevin Harvick sort of compartmentalizes the fact that he's in his forties and he's having as much success as anybody in the history of NASCAR, but he's able to just sort of ignore it somehow at the same time. Does that speak to his greatness in some ways? It does. 
if there's someone out there that I'm forgetting, I, I, I'm going to apologize, but I think no one had a tougher entry into the cup level than Kevin Harvick. Right. The guy he now trails on the win list, by the way, is Dale Earnhardt. That's so, the next so, guy. And I, and I mean by that is, is, I mean, it was a moment in the sport that no one was prepared for that, that whatever, 20-something years later, however far we are, 22 years, 21 years 21 later. 21 years later, yeah. It is still memorable. I mean, I remember the day, the moment, the time, the flight home from Daytona, everything about right. And he was asked to do the impossible, which is, hey, I need you to take this car that, that one of the greatest who has ever done it, that we lost a week ago, and you just need to go race it. And we're going to change the number, I'm going to change the color, but we all still know whose car it is. And he did it, and he did it in a remarkable fashion. I can't even imagine what it was like. So I think, you know, the first year or two had to be a blur for this young guy. So I think the fact that he has been able to take that entry into the sport and now move it into so much success in later years, it goes back. I wrote down some words as you were talking. His fitness is, is not in question at all. I mean, he's unbelievably fit. His health, his confidence, he put glasses on. He drives in glasses. He don't care what anybody thinks. Glasses makes me go faster. I wear glasses, right? Like, little thing. Like, I know that sounds silly, but you and I both know how fragile some of these great athletes are. IndyCar, sports car, NASCAR, you've seen it, right? Like, they won't admit any weakness. To some of those guys, glasses would have been a weakness. I'm not putting those on. People question that I could see. Kevin Harvick puts them on and says, I'm faster. I'm putting them on. Like, he just doesn't care. He beats to his own drum so much. I love the fact that... You know, when you start pointing out over 40, some guys will get defensive. Oh, I'm still this good. I'm still like – instead, what does he sits back and says, I love it. He just named the who's who of NASCAR and where they're at and they're retired and the fact that I can still do it is great. Like, I, I there's something about Harvick that, that – um, he's funny, right? Because sometimes he gets under my skin and he drives <laughs> me absolutely nuts. And the other times, I'm just so thankful he's around because he makes the sport so much better. But the point is he gets a reaction both ways. Like he's just – he's this captivating character who isn't even a character. Like he is as authentic as authentic can be. I, I think we all don't even realize how valuable he is. One day it's just going to be a little quiet. We're going to be, what happened? Well, Kevin Harvick's not here to stir the pot about something. He's not here to push Brad Keselowski into a fist fight with Jeff Gordon. You know, he's not here to jump over Ricky Rudd's hood and ready to fight him at Richmond. Like, his yeah. highlight reel is pretty long and I impressive. There's so many things that we forget. And you're right, it all goes back to filling the shoes of an icon, Dale Earnhardt, 2001, and he's been a Hall of Famer ever since. That was the Motormouths of the Race presented by eBay Motors. At eBay Motors, you can be your own pit crew with 120 million parts right at your fingertips. Get the right parts at the right prices. eBayMotors.com. Let's ride. All right, so we're going to end with Watkins Glen, of course. Can't wait. Watkins Glen, we've got Kimi Raikkonen, we've got Mike Rockenfeller, we've got Kvyat, the Russian F1 veteran, a, a former F1 track. We'll have all these F1 European-style drivers, you know, Kimi Raikkonen, an F1 champion. A lot happening this coming weekend on USA. Listen, it's a tip of the hat to NASCAR and what they've done with the car, the teams, the sport, the series, the schedule. It all goes into this. We're going to be calling it radio style. We're going to have the bag man back calling the action up the S's, which is always fun. Um, you know, I think Kimmy is going to be fun to be around. He's going to be a great storyline. All I hope at the end of the day is that Kimmy gets out after running about 18th, <laughs> has a great time, and and I, I just hope that people realize how good the drivers we have are. And, and I say that I'm guilty, you're guilty, 
we're all guilty because we're so close to them. I don't think we realize sometimes how remarkable they really are, like how great of drivers we really have in NASCAR. I know that sounds silly and maybe a little over the top, but it, it really is. Like, I was asked this question today, where's Kimmy going to finish? Will he run in the top 10? I, no, no chance he runs <laughs> in the top 10. Right. Um, not because he's not good enough. He is. And if he ran five or six races, I think he would end up in the top 10. But because I think we all take for granted how good they all are. I had a conversation with Mike Rockefeller. He was in Richmond. Um, and he's watched a bunch of races back. Him and Joey Hand had this conversation. I know Joey as well. I've had the same conversation with Joey. And Joey, he's just, you know, he's, you know this is a guy that won Le Mans. Like, when you talk about sports cars, other than F1, right? So he's never been in F1. But sports cars, he's been in all of them. And now we get Kimmy, who has done it at the – he was a world champion. And I, I think that when Kimmy gets out, he's going to have a huge smile. He's going to be shocked at how rough and tumbled it gets. And I think if you could ever pinpoint him down, I think he would tell you how good these stock car drivers are with these big, heavy, lumbering stock cars, just how talented they are. Now, it's very different, you know, but it's – they are very, very talented. All right. Well, maybe we'll hear that from him. 3 p.m. Sunday on USA. You can check out NASCAR on NASCAR and NBC with Steve Letart. Stevie, thanks for being here as always. Always fun. We appreciate Steve Letart for joining us on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. No one better suited to talk about a strategy race than the tactical maven for NASCAR and NBC. We are fortunate to have Stevie's insight during races and really glad the timing was perfect to have him join us to analyze Richmond on the podcast this week. Thanks to NBC Sports Senior Associate Producer Aaron Feldstein and Motorsports Manager Emily Conboy for helping line up Steve Letarte as our podcast guest. As we mentioned, NASCAR and NBC will be at Watkins Glen International this weekend, and the track truly is living up to its name. According to NASCAR PR, there will be drivers from seven countries racing in Sunday's Cup Series race, that will be the most international driver representation in NASCAR history for a race on the Premier Circuit. And you can watch that history on USA Network this weekend. Coverage of Sunday's race starts at 2 p.m. Eastern on USA Network. And Xfinity Series coverage Saturday will begin at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, also on USA from Watkins Glen. Check out NBCSports.com NASCAR for detailed schedules, start times, and coverage, as always. And if you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. 
Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.